My guest today on Mission Impact is Katherine Turner. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. Catherine and I talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in a global context. We discuss how the fields of diversity, equity, and inclusion and intercultural communications and competence intersects and how they do not. How globalization and shifting demographics are shifting the field. An approach to decolonizing international humanitarian efforts and how to help people move from just awareness to action. Well, welcome, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Carol. So I like to start with a question around what drew you to the work that you do? What motivates you and what would you describe as your why? That's such an important question. Well, I would begin with my background and my accident of birth, if you'll call it that, that, you know, being born a white middle class person um, and being gaining so much unearned privilege and power as a result of that um, and uh, it definitely has had a strong impact on my my values and my perspective of myself in relation to my life which is around um, that I I did gain so much unearned privilege and I have benefited so much from that and that I just want to work throughout my lifetime to try to create more equity and to equalize that. Um, and then certainly, uh, as a queer lesbian, you know, my identities in those ways and the kinds of experiences and discrimination that I've experienced have certainly informed a lot of my work, especially around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then having a biracial son with um, and a, a multiracial queer family uh, that is a blended family with my ex-partner who's African-American and her per- partner who's African-American and my current partner who's white and our son who's biracial, that as a multiracial queer family, so many of the experiences that I and my ex-partner and my current partner and our son and our our co-parents have experienced have really informed a lot of our understanding of the world and again, the kinds of changes that I'm looking to affect in the world to According to my company's tagline, create a better world, you know, for a better world for my son and and really for all people. Um, And then I grew up with a very global upbringing. So my family moved around a lot in general. And we lived in London my middle school years, um, which we also share a history with you on attending the American School in London. London uh, for three years and my family traveled a lot during that time and and since then I have lived and worked in a number of different countries and so that has really informed my understanding of myself as a as having a global citizenry identity and also viewing um, everything really from a global perspective so that has a huge impact on on the work that my firm does and and then my family, just on a personal level, just my my grandparents um, have had such a profound impact on me, as well as, of course, my parents. And and they really raised us with a strong sense of ethics, of uh, most of all integrity. And, you know, I've raised my son with that really firm belief that integrity, our integrity is our most prized uh, trait and possession and that we 
that we need to work throughout our lifetime to kind of embody integrity. And so that's always been number one for me. And that said, I also grew up in a family, a white family that didn't talk about our whiteness, didn't talk about race at all, that that raised me to think that it was impolite or not nice or wrong to notice, even notice or let alone talk about race and ethnicity and, and differences. And so that has also really informed my um, my convictions and my commitment to proactively addressing systemic racism and other forms of, of systemic oppression and discrimination. And, um, and I have an aunt who's developmentally disabled. Um, and, and so she also just growing up and, and seeing her, how her life and, and all of our lives have been affected by her disability has, has really informed my um, understanding and my and compassion and my desire to create a better world for people with differing abilities. Um, and I've just always been a systems thinker too. So I kind of approach, I approach problems and solutions from a systems perspective. So that informs the work that my firm does around affecting system, broader systemic changes. So I think it's, you know, in terms of my upbringing and then also my nature and personality just have really led themselves well to being a consultant, running a consulting firm, and specifically doing this work around diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, as well as global intercultural competence um, and global public health. Yeah, there are a lot of common intersections that we have, um, and, and yes. part of it, we, we, we kind of found out uh uh, by accident, um, that we had actually been at the same school overseas together in London. Exactly. Uh, during our middle school years. Um, but I just learned another one, which is you you have an aunt who's developmentally disabled, and mm. I have a brother who's developmentally disabled. Mm. And I feel like that, I, I also grew up in, in a white family that did not talk about race, that where it was impolite to pay attention to it and all of those common things that, that you described. Um, but I did grow up the younger sister of my brother who's deaf and autistic and developmentally disabled and so was able to see and experience how the world treated him differently um, and how he did not fit into systems and all of those things. And I think then also um, having that international experience uh, certainly enabled me to understand that culture exists and that everyone has a culture and that they all have different assumptions and to be able to see that in a way that when you're in it and you never leave it, it's very hard to see. Um, and, and one thing that you talked about, you talked about, uh, and I, I really appreciate how you grounded your why. And I think really when it comes down to it, everybody's purpose is uh, in what they're doing comes from all those experiences you're your your growing up, your family, uh, those those important influences, your chosen you know your chosen family as an adult, um, you know thinking about the blended family that you have. I'm also thinking about uh, my grandson who has multiple sets of grandparents mm -hmm. and three distinct cultures that he's interacting mm -hmm. with through mm -hmm. through that through those groups of grandparents. So. Um, you know, the just different uh, experience that he will have uh, even from from mine. So appreciating all of that. And one of the, the things that you talked about was um, doing what's called in the United States generally, as I understand it, diversity, equity and inclusion work, and then also uh, working globally around global competence and intercultural communications. And 
I probably um, was more aware of <clears throat> the field of intercultural communications first and then, um, had, you know, learned more about diversity, uh, the field of diversity, equity and inclusion. And as I learned about both, um, really was curious about how each field had developed while they're working in many ways um, on similar issues. I feel like there's a there's a very different perspective. Um, DEI being rooted in, I, I think, if I'm if I'm correct, the the kind of history, the particular history of the United States and our history with racism. Um, but then applied in organizational context to try to mitigate that. Um, and then intercultural communication, uh, probably coming out of the experience of, of a previous generation of folks like you and me who either grew up overseas or worked overseas and have that um, uh, and probably more likely to be white or uh, an elite from an international um, uh, or different countries. And and yet there's some things from each field that there mm -hmm. that over, overlaps, and then and I've also experienced where people have no idea that one field or the other exists. Exactly. I'm curious, <laughs> I'm curious about your experience with that. Yeah, I've I've had a similar similar experiences, and um, it it is curious to me. I've always felt that I've straddled these worlds and and many worlds, and that that's one of the roles can serve to play as, as a bridge builder between them and to help people understand kind of the interconnectedness of people as well as concepts. Um, and so, yeah, certainly when we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion work and understanding that people and companies use different acronyms and language for that. Sure. So sometimes it could include DEIJ for justice or DEIA for accessibility, et cetera, the alphabet soup, um, that the origins are around uh, the realities of systemic uh, oppression and, and specifically racism in the U.S., as well as gender uh, sexism and gender equity work in the U.S. So a lot of the anti-racism and gender equity work has really informed um, the DEI fields that started more with focus on diversity and then gradually started to encompass understanding that it's, while it's important to have it is important to have a representation and a diverse mix of people in any workplace or community, um, and that diversity is important and not sufficient to create a culture of inclusion and belonging. And so then that recognition of inclusion, um, and then ultimately working towards equity, that even with inclusion, where when we take actions to ensure people are feeling fully valued to participate, that that still doesn't account for the historic and present day discrimination and disparities that exist because of systemic racism, sexism, and other forms of systemic oppression. And that um, in order to achieve equity, we need to recognize those historic and present day disparities and take specific actions to address them and provide the opportunities and resources that people who have been discriminated against need in order to actually um, achieve equity. Um, and that we know we'll have achieved it when race or gender or other uh, identity markers like that are no longer a predetermining factor for outcomes. And so that's that's really important. And yet, as you noted, um, when I was uh, years ago, when, when, you know, earlier in the field, when I would participate in or facilitate DEI conversations, um, sometimes people um, in the U.S. would challenge me when I would 
bring in a global context or want to have a global conversation around DEI uh, and even feel that I was trying to minimize the realities of systemic discrimination and racism, specifically in anti-Black racism in the U.S. context. Um, to me, having grown up internationally and really understanding, seeing the seeing issues through a global lens, it's impossible for me to think about even the history of slavery and anti-Black discrimination in the U.S. without putting it into a global context, because literally, obviously, Black people in the U.S., you know, came originally from Africa and and, and then all of the centuries of uh, movement and political and economic and social and other um, phenomena that has resulted to us being in the situation we're in in the U.S. and that there are so many parallels around systemic discrimination in different countries. And I find it incredibly valuable to learn from experiences in different countries and to apply those lessons across the globe, um, that we have so much to learn in the U.S. from other what the experiences and wisdom in other countries and vice versa. I think that because of our history of of this, you know, in the U.S., we're often really indoctrinated to believe that the U.S. is the best country in the world, that we are superior, that we have all the answers, and that's a lot of the work that that my firm does around global competence is helping people who have been, as all of us who were raised in the West, and kind of indoctrinated with this this false belief, to understand that there there's so much that we have to learn from people in other countries and systems in other countries, um, and similarly in the uh, global intercultural competence, again, goes by different terms. Fields, uh, as you noted, a lot of that has come out of thought leaders who grew up with, an interna with international experiences um, or who held positions in which they were working internationally and then, you know, developing models and frameworks and concepts and understanding of what intercultural skills or competence, you know, what the elements of those are and what they look like um, and how to teach them and how to learn them and how to practice them. And even, you know, global citizen, we have our own global competence model that, and, and framework and curricula that we use in our trainings. Um, and yet when we look at the history, as you noted, many of the earlier uh, kind of, pioneers, if you will, of, uh, and I guess I'm using that term uh, significantly, in the intercultural competence fields were predominantly white Western people with an international upbringing or, ex or professional experience. And, uh, and there had not been until more recently uh, an understanding and an incorporation of equity and justice within those models and frameworks. And so, as you noted, there really has been historically a disconnect. I would, you know, I've written papers, journal manuscripts, and I've been a keynote speaker and done a lot of kind of speaking and writing and thought leadership and consulting in each of these areas. And yet the communities and fields have been quite distinct until more recently, I would go to conferences and you know, address, talk about the interrelation with uh, intercultural or global competence and DEI, and people would give me looks like these are completely separate fields. And similarly, again, in the DEI space, like the example I shared, uh, where people would some, some people would sometimes question me bringing a global lens and even my motivations for doing that. Uh, but, but more recently, 
I think given the popularization of equity uh, and, the, and the kind of greater understanding and awareness, and hopefully as we're working on action, uh, more recently around equity, I think there has been more understanding and more uh, interconnectedness among those fields. Where are you seeing the common points or the interconnections? Where are you seeing people kind of make those make those links? Yeah, that's such a great question. Well, first of all, I think that with increasing globalization and increasing population diversity. Um, so in the U.S., for example, we're, you know, when we think about people who are living, currently living in the U.S., who are born in other countries, we're at the highest point in over a century, and those trends are only going to continue. So when we just look at the demographic data on populations in the U.S. and populations in many countries the world over, because of increasing migration, because of globalization, more people are moving to other countries or continents are for work or for sanctuary or for other reasons, and then forming families, uh, families that are increasingly across cultures or countries, and then having children who are increasingly multicultural, that the you know population, the demographics are shifting. And we in the US and people in other countries are becoming increasingly um, international uh, and because of migration and um, diverse and, and multi-ethnic and multi-racial. And so these sh this also affects a shift in cultures, obviously, and, uh, and those numbers also that who's in the majority, that they, for example, the US will be a, a majority black and brown country by or before the year 2045. So this is affecting huge cultural changes. And I think more and more people are recognizing global the global nature of all issues, including DEI. Um, and then in the intercultural or global competence fields, there has been the, um, the move towards, and in other fields in the humanitarian sectors and, and in the global nonprofit um, and development sectors, there's been an increasing awareness around decolonization. Um, which at its roots is about recognizing the systemic oppression affected by worldwide colonization and the lasting impact of that and the need to, um, to identify and work to mitigate the effects of colonization in all of the work that people do internationally, whatever the sector is. And, and those are different terms, but they're still speaking to an understanding of the root causes history, causes of systemic oppression, the lasting impact in the ways that oppression has been uh, inculcated into all of our institutions our major institutions and into our cultures and the ways that we think and act, and then a need to identify and work to disrupt that, which is parallel to the work that we're doing around anti-racism, around uh, sec you know gender equity and gender around uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression around accessibility for people with differing um, uh, with disabilities, et cetera. So, so I think people are starting to understand those root causes and and consequences and impact, and that the solutions um, on a systemic level are are somewhat similar. Yeah, thinking about that history, it's always <laughs> kind of gotten to me that when I hear folks from Europe saying, "Oh, you know, we don't have those." racism <laughs> problems that you have in the oh. US. <laughs> like um wait a second 
where did it start? Who were the colonizers? Who came over here and then colonized the folks? Who were the integral parts of the entire enslavement system? All of the, you know, countries in Europe and then all of the ripple effects, um, you know, some of them having them more directly uh, because of migration and, and uh, you know, who's come to live in the countries, for example, in, in the UK. Um, but yeah, that just like, wait a second. <laughs> Um, absolutely well and then when different there may be you know different particularities but there's so much that's that's you know in common there when you're working with organizations um that are that are trying to you know take steps towards um the decolonization that you're talking about uh, in that international context um can you can you give me some examples of kind of what's a useful place for people to get started yeah, I think, first of all, just having accurate information, you know, so one methodology that I had helped to develop in a previous role when I was a global uh, senior health systems advisor and manager at, at IPAS, which is an international nonprofit working on women's sexual reproductive health and rights, and um, was a values clarification attitude transformation methodology that's really about helping people understand um replace inaccurate information with accurate and factually correct accurate information and then also really undergo a deep process of identifying and um, and identifying their core values and then linking their core values with their beliefs and their attitudes and their actions um, and that's that's an important methodology that we employ um, but just awareness raising as a as a starting place for many people in particular, like you and I were describing at the beginning, um, the way, you know, that the, the circumstances that we're born into, uh, the identities that we have been born into, um, or that we have kind of acquired over our lifetime, for those of us who have uh, identity, identity markers that are part of the dominant group, whatever that group may be, and that's going to be different in different cultural and country contexts, uh, the kinds of privilege and power that we experience is oftentimes invisible to us unless we take actions to really understand what they are and then again um, take actions to work to interrupt them. And so there are many people going through the world who don't really aren't aware of the kinds of power and privilege and power that they're experiencing on a daily basis because of their skin color, because of their gender identity you know, because of their sexual orientation, et cetera, because of their ability, et cetera. And so just having that awareness and, and, and helping people to kind of disrupt that, uh, that kind of ignorance, not using that in a pejorative sense, but a literally not knowing, not understanding. Um, and then inciting people or encouraging people to understand the impact that that has on other people. And um, I think once people start to understand that by moving through the world in this unaware way, they are, we all are saying and doing things that can unintentionally, in most cases, some people are intentionally doing harm to others, but in most cases, people are unintentionally saying and doing things that are causing harm to others. And once people realize that they're having that impact on others, um, however unintentional, however good intention their their intentions are, however good their intentions are, um, 
most people are are going to feel a deep sense of distress or at least discomfort or distress over this knowledge that they're inadvertently doing that and then are would be motivated to want to make changes and then once people understand that's kind of at an individual level once people understand at a more systemic level the ways that systemic oppression has been again institutionalized and is and is is continuing to cause harm and discrimination towards people um, even if the people in those institutions are not conscious of perpetuating those injustices, then they will feel motivated to want to affect uh, systemic changes um, in order to create an opportunity where everyone truly has equitable resources and an opportunity to advance. So I think it's about appealing to I, I believe that at base, at core, you know, most people are good and want good for others and that we just need to help them understand how the ways that we're currently thinking and the ways that we're currently acting may be contrary to our values or our beliefs about what's good and right in the world and what our role is in affecting goodness, positive change, um, or affecting harm. And, you know, where do we want to land on that side? And again, I believe and my experience is that most people want to do better and, and then are motivated and, and, and just may not know, may not know what harm they're causing and then may not, or the, the, um, the, the level of harm that they're causing and then may not know what to do about it. And that we need to give them the knowledge and the tools um, to help them align their values and their intentions um, with their with their practices yeah i i saw an article or just read the headline in the new york times of you know why dei training doesn't work and i feel like um i will read the article uh so i'm so i'm a little more informed than what i'm about to say but uh just from my experience i i think that sometimes um or or maybe too often uh, folks get to that awareness stage, but they're the the next step isn't taken to help people practice. Well, what what would I do differently? They might be told to do you know do this that or the other, but then when you're in that instance of an uncomfortable, somebody says something that makes you feel uncomfortable, and you you you're feeling like you want to say something, but you're just frozen. Like how do you get yourself out of that and and to be able to right. take some action? Um, what have you seen help people kind of move beyond just awareness to to being able to feel like they're equipped to to manage a difficult situation? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, so a, a number of things. So again, one just being able to recognize having the the self awareness to recognize in the moment what's happening, and you know, for many of us, it's only in hindsight or when someone else brings it to our attention that we recognize that something we've said or done has caused harm, or again, that by doing nothing in a system that has been designed to favor white people or light skinned people and oppress brown and black skinned people and indigenous people, that uh, by doing nothing, we are also causing harm. That it's 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 not enough to, to do to do nothing or to not intentionally do harm to others. That that's not that's not enough because of the way the systems have been designed. Um, and so, again, kind of a deeper recognition of that and a, and an acceptance of that. Uh, and then, 
having people really uh, practice is also helpful, you know, to give people opportunities. Some of it is providing some of the language, you know, during global citizens trainings, we will provide some phrases that people can use to um, interrupt a situation in the moment to give some training on bystander intervention so that, you know, when you're in a situation where you have inadvertently caused harm to someone else and you just have realized it, or someone else has brought it to your awareness, or you witness um, that a microaggression or a harmful act or comment has just been, you know, made. What, you know, what are some words and what's some vocabulary that you can use? Um, and then also that mindset of commitment. So in addition to giving people the language, in addition to providing scenarios, in addition to giving people opportunities to talk in small groups, even possibly do role plays to actually practice it. Because what's true is the more that we practice saying the words, the more that we practice being courageous and intervening, the, the more comfortable we're gonna become with it. I wanna come back to comfort. Um, and then setting commitments and intentions that we know from the evidence or from the literature that when people form behavioral intentions, we're more likely to act on those intentions. So in my trainings, I always ask people at the end to identify, you know, what are actions that you will commit to, to doing from now on as a result of this training or a result of your awareness? that you will affect that you will begin to affect what can you commit to doing starting today and then also putting in place what we know is a very um, tried and true method which is accountability structures so uh, forming accountability partnerships or groups or as a team or as a leadership group again setting your commitments and then creating accountability structures so that you have shared your commitments and your goals with others you're you're checking in with each other with your accountability partner you're um, supporting each other when you're running into roadblocks or challenges and and having people who you can really who can help you kind of work through those challenges and figure out how to do it you know your intervention in a more effective way and then as always checking in uh, on how you're doing. So asking for feedback and that requires leaders and, and everyone to be more vulnerable and to say, I'm in the process of learning some new skills around intervening. It doesn't feel comfortable with, uh, to me at the moment. So I'm gonna be practicing these new skills and let me know how I'm doing you know, and, and invite feedback um, is really important. And so all, all of those techniques are, are valuable. And then this issue of comfort, which when we think about um, Tema Okun and, and others' important work around white supremacy culture, and by white supremacy culture, I mean the full kind of continuum of white supremacy. So in its most extreme egregious form of the KKK and neo-Nazism, and all the ways that um, white privilege and power have been institutionalized and then internalized that we inadvertently perpetuate it and that we could be white people and it also can be black and brown people or people of color who inadvertently perpetuate white supremacy culture. And one of the traits of white supremacy culture is this belief that we have a right to comfort, that somehow we, we should not be made to feel uncomfortable. And that's something that I think is really important that I work in my coaching and my consulting with companies and leaders to really have people question this and, and kind of challenge this and lean into um, a, 
our acceptance of discomfort. And so often I've, I've been incorporating more somatics or embodiment into uh, our work at Global Citizen. And so I'll often begin a training or a workshop or a talk with asking people to take a moment of mindfulness, uh, a moment of awareness about their bodies and how they're currently feeling in their bodies. And then throughout the training or the workshop or the talk to be aware of what sensations are coming up for them. What are they noticing in their body? Where are they noticing it? What is the, the feeling, the texture, the color, the width, the breadth, the depth of it? Um, and to, to use that information as an, as an uh, important, that noticing as an important source of information about what causes them to feel light and joyful and excited and positive, what causes them to feel um, distress or discomfort. And where there is discomfort, to notice what what the nature of that discomfort is and then to go back to it later and explore it more so that they can understand it and use that information to inform their actions in the future. And that's, that's an, a really powerful way of disrupting white supremacy culture and also of helping all of us to become more integrated beings. Because I really believe that one of the most egregious effects of white supremacy culture is that it has caused uh, those of us who have internalized it to become disembodied, to become, to separate our, our minds and our bodies as though they're distinct from each other, rather than to bring our whole bodied selves into our lives and work. And so that's something else that I'm interested in, um, in incorporating into our work and also to helping more people to become more fully integrated in this way. And that I think that has can have powerful societal impact as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot in, in what you were talking about, but that, that sense of disconnection that is so um, ingrained in uh, white American culture, um, uh, Northern European culture, as I experienced it, that very distinct of, you know, uh separation but then also vilification of anything mm, to do with the body mm. so um i do appreciate uh how more and more um folks are are you know bringing that to the fore and uh helping people learn more so that they can um be better integrated and um and and part of the the description of white supremacy culture to me in some ways is a description of any supremacy culture, mm -hmm. there are aspects of it that, um, like that right to comfort, anyone yeah. who, in whatever context, and and not all, you know, in some contexts, the, 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 as you said, the, the markers, many contexts, the markers of identity are going to be in common of who's in that elite group. Um, but in some contexts, not. And, and so some of those things around, you know, right to comfort or power hoarding or, uh, maybe mm -hmm. some others, I think, you know, are going to be pre prevalent and, and noticeable in any dominant group in a culture. Um, Absolutely. So that's a, a kind of an interesting thing to think about as well. Well, and a lot more to explore because that has been something that um, I and my firm are actually really working more on uh, understanding and, and incorporating into our work. And, you know, we are planning to do some work around uh, decolonizing DEI and understanding and um, advancing DEI 
uh, with more of global perspective and global understanding about how they're under how they're experienced and understood and practiced in different contexts, um, and that even the ways that we're approaching DEI may be inadvertently perpetuating colonization, and there needs to be a decolonization process. Um, Can you say more about that? What that means or what that looks like? Yeah. So, you know, even just a, a lot when I'm working, I work with a lot of international organizations. And um, so even when we are doing our work together, so I haven't really talked a lot about our process, but we always begin with an assessment. So we'll look at secondary data, like any data or survey, survey data or other, you know, employee engagement survey. Um or uh, demographic data or you know, employee data that we can look at as well as employee handbooks and bylaws and any organizational documents. And then we also will conduct interviews with key stakeholders, focus group discussions. Obviously there's my observations as I'm working with organizations and pulling all of those uh, that information together into an assessment of what is the current state of an organization or company, and then doing strategic visioning and planning with the uh, leaders to, to understand what have we learned from this strategic assessment um, that would inform your strategic vision of where you want your organization to be, and then what are the strategies and steps that we need to put in place to help you work towards that, you know, incrementally. And then attaching some success metrics and uh, ways of measuring where are you currently and using data as much as possible and data broadly defined as much as possible to understand your current state and then um, attaching success metrics to your goals and strategies so that you can measure progress over time and know what what progress you're making or not making and then change your strategies accordingly. And so as we're undergoing these processes, uh, another important uh, step that, that we do is to ensure that um, in our collaboration with our client partner, that the, uh, we usually are working with a couple of key people um, in some organizations that might be a DEI uh, working group or council that is a representative group of employees who represent different demographics, if they're international or national, different geographies, different levels and roles in the organization, different divisions. And so that's that's a really key part is that we are intentionally selecting a diverse group of people that we're collaborating with who are going to bring diverse lived experiences and perspectives to the issues. But even in the ways that we work sometimes, getting back to your question, is that um, there's so many ways that white and Western, and sometimes those terms can be um, interchangeable, um, that white and Western ways of working don't work for people in different cultural and country contexts. Um, so some of it is when we're having a live conversation and we're facilitating a live conversation. So some of what's come up in some of the international companies I work with is for people for whom English is a second language, you know, hearing a question in the moment and being asked to respond to give their responses in the moment uh, for all of us who speak multiple languages, when you're doing it in not our primary language, that's incredibly challenging to be able to, you know, understand the question, think critically about our responses, and formulate our response in uh, a secondary or third or fourth language for us. And so being able to provide people with questions in advance so that people can have time to think about them, to start to formulate their responses in advance, 
Also providing multiple avenues for people to provide input on a given issue. So sure, live conversation is an important one, one important means, but also it could be a survey where for some people formulating their responses in writing may come easier in different languages than saying it verbally. And then even in the moment, um, again, kind of providing questions in advance. So what I'm doing now is when I'm going to be doing a training or a workshop or a meeting with an international group, I'll provide the questions that we're going to be discussing in advance. So people, again, have a chance to think about them in advance. Um, and then even in the moment, <clears throat> Uh, giving people the option if it's a virtual session with responding verbally or in the chat. Uh, we might have a, a shared document or a Jamboard or some other software that people can write their responses in. And that's usually going to give them a little bit, um, again, kind of a variety of options to give their responses. Um, so that's, you know, it, that's some of what we're talking about when we say how to create more kind of globally competent ways of approaching our work together. Um, and then not everyone is going to want to, you know, share in live sessions. So even as we're co-designing or co, for example, one of the groups I'm working with is an international nonprofit organization, and we're um, co-developing a training series with the DEI working group that comprises representatives from all over the world. And so in our shared document, you know, we're, we're creating, we're offering drafts, giving people opportunities for feedback over longer periods of time, having live meetings to check in on how we've incorporated their feedback, doing multiple rounds of this, where again, people have kind of multiple avenues, more time and more advanced notice in order to be able to formulate and provide their feedback. Yeah, and I think those are, those are really things that one could do in any context to to be helpful. Um, For sure. I, recently, um, Microsoft has so many uh, accessibility things built into their products and was at a, a retreat where I accidentally, I, I wasn't paying attention, I accidentally turned on the closed captions and people were just like, oh my God, look at that. And it was great because even in the back of the room, you know, they were able to see, they may not it, it was just made that easier whether folks had a, a hearing challenge or not um so little uh, there are a lot of uh ways in which um it 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 comes back to that i guess that sense of kind of universal design when you make it better for folks with challenges you're actually making it better for everybody absolutely um, yeah, yes and, yeah. and as a hearing impaired person i find that incredibly helpful also that closed captioning um, really does help me ensure that i can really grasp everything that's being shared mm -hmm. yeah absolutely we'll be back after this quick break mission impact is sponsored by grace social sector consulting grace social sector consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. So just to shift, shift topics now here at the end, um, at the end of each episode, I ask a, 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 a somewhat random icebreaker question that I have, a, I have a box of them that I pull out. So what um, does the first 30 minutes or hour of a typical day for you look like? Mm. Yeah, so uh, I do a little bit of mindfulness in the morning, you know, just as I'm awakening, uh, just to 
again, kind of center myself in my body and, um, and to take just to notice how I'm feeling, um, doing a little bit of stretching. Uh, as I age, I'm finding that the some routine stretching throughout the day and first thing in the morning have been helpful. Um, certainly looking at my calendar and, and anticipating the day ahead, um, kissing my partner, you know, this is in no particular order, <laughs> kissing my partner and, um, and playing with our dog and hugging my son. Good morning. And, um, having breakfast, you know, these are all, uh, all the usual, you know, showering and dressing and preparing for the day. <laughs> Well, that sounds like a lovely way to start the morning. So um, I've started Uh, recently with with reading and uh, then getting out and getting some exercise and some stretching. So, yeah, it's Mm -hmm. I'm finding it's it's really uh, 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 lovely to be able to start the day a little bit slower Mm -hmm. um, than Mm -hmm. in the past. So. Well, thank you so much. It was great having you on the podcast. Um, My pleasure. What's what's coming up for you? What's what are you what are you excited about? What's what's emerging in the work that you're doing? Yeah, so one of the areas is what I had mentioned earlier around Global Citizen uh, and our interns and and team are going to be uh, doing some research, some assessment, and then some great information sharing with uh, global audiences around decolonizing DEI and understanding both DEI concepts and frameworks and also implementation and practices from a, a truly global perspective and a more globally competent perspective. Um, and you know, continuing our ongoing work kind of around uh, global citizenry and global competence. So Global Citizen also has our Global Citizens in Action leadership program for young people. And we're always looking for organizations and groups to collaborate with on that. We have curricula, we have interns who assist with the facilitation. And we're always looking for organizations that are serving young people and would want to collaborate with us because they know the young people they're working with would benefit from this kind of education and training on global citizenry and understanding ourselves as ethical global citizens. And um, uh, we're working on a project currently about bringing some of the curricular content that we have on this to social media. And so engaging with um, engaging with TikTok and YouTube and Instagram uh, micro influencers to collaborate on spreading more of this kinds of education on glo- global citizenry and diversity, equity, and inclusion in social media. And, um, and of course, just our ongoing work on DEI, global competence, and um, global public health are near and dear to my heart. Um, I'm also an adjunct professor at UNC Chapel Hill at the Gilling School of Global Public Health, and I recently collaborated with my colleagues on writing a chapter for a textbook for public health and healthcare leaders on um, a leadership textbook and wrote the chapter on DEI and cultural competence for leaders. And so I'm always excited about doing consulting and coaching with leaders because, of course, change always begins with leaders. And um, so the more that we can help leaders become more inclusive and effective in their leadership, the more that will affect those changes at a broader organizational level 
And I really believe that by intervening at the organizational level, we are also affecting systemic changes because people bring what they're learning in their workplaces out into their families and communities and all of the organizations that they're engaged with um, beyond the workplace. So as always, it's focusing on affecting change and transformation at every level, the individual, the interpersonal, uh, the institutional and the systemic levels. Yeah, so I love I love the uh, the combination of focus on leaders and uh, their impact on organizations and culture, and then also working with uh, young people uh, to to equip them um, with skills earlier on in their career. So we're not having to hopefully uh, have as much mitigation maybe to do. Exactly. Let's start so I love that combination. <laughs> I love that combination. Well, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on. It's been my pleasure, Carol. And thank you. Thank you for hosting this wonderful podcast. And thanks for inviting me to join you. I've really loved our conversation. I'm really curious about where Catherine's work on decolonizing DEI work goes and what emerges from it. After our conversation, I looked up the article in the Times that I had mentioned. For one, it was an opinion piece, and I will link to it in the show notes. The headline, if you want to read it, is What if diversity trainings are doing more harm than good? by Jesse Signal. One of its main points is that there has not been a large study to demonstrate the impact of diversity training and how the trainings can sometimes actually reinforce stereotypes and racial bias and create a backlash when they're mandatory. And since most of these trainings happen within organizations, private, private for-profit or private nonprofit, it's not really that surprising that no large study has happened. Someone would have to fund the study for one and gain the cooperation of all those folks. And it would be great if such a study or multiple such studies were to happen, because I can't imagine practitioners in the field want to create, offer, and implement programs that don't have the intended impact. But I also feel like a lot of the stories about DEI have that bent, and it's certainly an attention-grabbing headline. In fact, as I looked at that article, I noticed that the Times had a podcast episode from 2021 with almost the same title. In the end, I think they do a disservice to the people doing their best to address the deeply embedded social ills and inequities that exist. And no, no training is going to shift hundreds of years of history and culture making. Should we look for and emphasize what works? For sure. Yet we need to start somewhere. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Catherine the full tra transcript of our conversation, as well as any links or resources mentioned in the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I'd like to thank Isabel Strauss-Rakes for her support in editing and production, as well as April Coaster of 100 Ninjas for her production support. Please take a minute to rate and review Mission Impact on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find the podcast and we really appreciate it. So until next time, thank you for everything you do to contribute and make an impact.